0: Thanks for tuning in to Size Up. I'm Jeff Heyer-Jones. And I'm
1: Kayla Parker. Let's meet today's guest.
0: Welcome, everyone. Today's guest is Deb Peluso, who is the founder and CEO of the Change Collaborative, LLC, a change enablement and organizational design consulting firm. Her organization works with clients across military, government, nonprofit, Fortune 500 organizations to improve organizational performance and execute large-scale change, very fortunate to have Deb as a thought parter, partner, partner, uh, friend, and colleague. And Deb, welcome! And we're so very happy to to have you on today.
2: Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah. So uh, I know Deb lives here in Central Ohio uh, with uh, Caleb, and I also live in Central Ohio. And I thought. You know, we'd start, you know, looking at your LinkedIn bio dev and, and knowing you, you've had a really impressive career even before you started your own business, the the change collaborative. And, you know, can you share a little bit with us maybe about your background prior to f- funding your own company and um, how you got into, you know, helping organizations with their performance?
2: Yeah. So I would tell you that I'm the luckiest person Um I went to college and got a degree in psychology and graduated and had no idea what I was going to do with that degree and that experience. And within a couple months after graduating, I um, landed a job at the best company that I probably could have ever worked for right out of college. And that was a small boutique research and consulting company that studied how people make decisions under stress time pressure, and conflicting information. In other words, how do you help people make better life and death decisions? And so I got into this amazing line of work of studying high-performing teams and high-performing individuals. And it really just piqued curiosity in me about what makes for optimal organizational performance. And years ago, I started working with teams and individuals looking at ways to improve performance. And I, that has been the thread throughout my career.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So a little bit about, you know, you said you were the luckiest (laughs) person uh, to fall into that, that career. That's pretty amazing. And because of the work that you've done there and even, you know, over the last 20 years, you've, you've also been published in a number of articles on, on these types of types of topics, right? Yes.
2: I, that job afforded me the opportunity to work with a, a PhD level thinkers and researchers and authors in human factors, engineering and cognitive psychology and a field that the founder of the company created called naturalistic decision-making. And uh, the work was to do applied research and consulting. So we were helping real teams solve solve real challenges, but we were funded often through government contracts. And so they would always want us to document the work that we had done and the consulting services we had provided. So that's where a lot of the publication work came as a result of that work.
0: That's really cool. And then, so as you moved out of that, I know you did some, some stints as well and some larger organizations. What was that transition like, you know, going from a a smaller boutique type firm into, you know, some of the larger organizations that that you are a part of?
2: Yes. So I I made that shift intentionally. Um, I I had been, you know, working with uh, folks like Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and uh, firefighters and critical care nurses and it was fascinating to me. And I, I knew I needed some additional schooling and perspective on how to study high-performing teams and how to help organizations be more effective. And so I pursued a master's degree in organization development. And it really got me interested in um, what do, for lack of a better word, normal workplaces look like uh, where people are not making decisions under these conditions. And I decided to... to direct and specifically get some experience inside large organizations to kind of round out what I had seen in in other types of organizations. So I um, worked in financial services and in banking for a short amount of time. I also spent about three and a half to four years in manufacturing, uh, working for a large global auto manufacturer. And those experiences were just absolutely invaluable to understand organizational life on the inside.
0: Oh, that's really fascinating. So when you talked about some of the the Navy SEAL work, what was that like? (laughs) If you can talk about it, obviously. I don't want to, you know, get... uh... (laughs) <laughs> eliminated if you can't you know if it's one of those it's top secret if we tell you we have to kill you. Type things. Uh,
2: most of what I learned and worked on has been declassified. Um, I will say at the time we were doing some research and some work where we were interviewing um, uh, special forces at, around uh, operations that they had led or had recently been on that any one of us would have known about in the news. Um, and it was, it was fascinating to hear the firsthand account of how some of these things are planned and executed and, and what it means to be on the front line of making really critical decisions. And then, of course, we would all know what the public non-classified version of some of these stories were. Um, I, I remember talking to Army Rangers who had been in Somalia during the Mogadishu incident in the late nineties and hearing firsthand how they had to um, fight to survive and and get out of that city in the ambush situation that they were in. And it was, it's humbling to hear those stories. Uh, It it is also um, a privilege to be able to hear people's experiences. So I I will never forget that.
0: No, that's, that is awesome, uh, totally, really neat to hear kind of that, spe- you know, that viewpoint that you had into that, into that line of work. What's really cool uh, for me is I'm learning new things about you, you know, even on on this podcast around your background and, and some of the experiences that you had. Now, you know, thinking back, so the Change Collaborative uh, this September is celebrating their 11th year in business. Yes, coming up right? on
2: 11 years.
0: Which is absolutely awesome to see. At what point kind of in your career, um, in, you know, the years leading up to uh, creating the Change Collaborative, did you start to get this thought that, hey, maybe I should go out on my own and do this? You know, was this something that you always wanted to do or just over time you kind of evolved into, hey, I could do this? Well, those
2: first four years of my professional career working for that small boutique research and consulting firm really equipped me with a lot of the skills that I am using now out on my own. Um, I had the security and the benefit of, of working for a company. But at the same time, I was writing proposals and doing business development and uh, formulating approaches to projects and concepts, and so a lot of the skills that I learned early in my career have directly translated. And I think I kind of got the consulting bug. Uh, I started out in consulting, and you know, made that pivot to the inside to get that perspective. But I thought I, in the back of the my, my mind, I always knew I'd get back to consulting at some point. And the opportunity came. Um, I wasn't exactly looking to leap at that time. But the opportunity came uh, during the 2008-2009 recession, and that uh, was the period in time where I was working uh, inside Honda of America manufacturing, and um, I was not laid off, but I was um, somebody who had taken a voluntary uh, buyout opportunity, and um, it it was it's one of those life once career opportunities um, where there was uh, a chance to go out and hang my shingle and try it out. And um, I had a little bit of uh, financial security in the buyout package that would allow me to do that experimentation. And I thought, well, let's try it. Let's go for it. Worst case scenario, I can try to go find a a full-time permanent position again if this doesn't work out. So I made the leap and here we are a couple, well, a decade or so later.
0: That is just awesome to to hear that story i think the thing that you know resonates with me even right now with you know the pandemic that we're you know dealing with right and a lot of uncertainty and people being furloughed or laid off you know that really these are the opportunities that that you can have to really take the bull by the horns right and and write your own story you know if if that's something that you want to make a change. Definitely. Uh,
2: it's, and, and with that said, uh, I, I will always tell people that it's not without risk, of course, um, but if you wait for all of the answers to be in place, um, there will never be a good time. So it's, it's a balance between um, what you're looking for and, and how you want to work and the kind of work you want to do um and the risk tolerance that you have to to go ahead and and step out on your own
1: yeah so uh i know a lot of young entrepreneurs out there want to bring value at a young age so i guess my question to you is what was your journey like in terms of patience hard work and choices where morality versus money came into play
2: morality versus money that's a great question um Well, I I think that hits on something that's pretty near and dear to our heart. Um, We when I say we I mean, my husband, because he does work with me as as well as a small network of very uh, good partners and strategic thought partners. We tend to take work uh, where we think we can add value, and where it's going to help the client move forward. Um, I can tell you there have been one or two times in my career where somebody has approached us to help with projects that when we dug a little deeper, we realized that the intention of the project um, was, was not uh, something that aligned to our values. Um, for example, I won't, I won't reveal who this was or the organization, but um, we had a potential client one time tell us, well, we just need to hire you because we need a fall guy for the decisions that we've already made. And I can tell you there's no amount of money that somebody could pay us that we would be willing to step in and, and be in that position. So it, it does come down to doing good work and leaving organizations better off than how we found them when we entered.
1: So usually with change, there's some type of conflict or uneasiness. Uh, did you ever go against the grain in terms of your job title or you know, being a 22 year old fresh out of college, did you ever feel like you're in a position that you could really implement change? Uh, and how did you approach those situations being so young?
2: Well, um, it was trying not to let age or lack of experience stand in the way. Um, I think sometimes we are our own, um, worst critics. I think sometimes we put those barriers in front of ourselves, even if, um, nobody else has. I remember being young and, and leading a project. I probably had about two years of experience and, um, I was briefing an army general and his staff and, I didn't realize I did it at the time, but I walked right into the briefing room and just, you know, laid down what was what I was told later was just an excellent briefing. And um, they they call they they I think were impressed. I don't think age was an issue. I don't think it, it came up. It was just I'm here to do my job. And they were there to evaluate the ideas and decide if they wanted to partner with us.
0: That's really cool, Deb. I mean, I think a lot of it, right goes back to it sounds like you had the confidence in your skills and ability at the time, right And going into that meeting with those army generals, you knew your stuff front, front to back, right? And, and you were confident in what you were portraying, right which ended up being this excellent briefing that. Yeah, that you got. I think
2: confidence and belief in what you're doing, even if it's not perfect and polished, can go a long way because if somebody believes and trusts that, that you have something to offer and that you have a way to solve their problem, uh, the rest of those things can be overcome.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's maybe shift gears just a little bit. So, you know, 11 years in business with the change collaborative, um, you know, when you look back over those, you know, first 11 years in business, what are some of the largest accomplishments you feel like you've had as a business owner, a consultant, you know, uh, a small business owner, you know, getting started? What are some of those big accomplishments that stand out to you over the, the past 11 years? The
2: biggest shift happened in probably the second or third year of, of business For the first couple of years, I was approaching only projects and work that I could do myself. And it was around the middle of the second year, or the third year that opportunities started to present themselves that were either uh, bigger than I could do myself or required expertise that I didn't have, or that I knew something about but not I wasn't fully, um, you know, capable or competent in, in an area that would be required for the project. And I started reaching out and building intentional partnerships with people that I knew had skill sets and experiences that could augment what I do and what I knew. And that is when our business really started to take off. And we, we started to take on more interesting projects, more complex projects, um, sometimes more impactful projects. And it was because it was about building a team that could come together and solve the client's problem, as opposed to just one person trying to have all the answers.
0: Very cool. So maybe to talk a little bit more about that scalability, right? So it sounds like in that second or third year in business, you kind of realized, hey, to to get some more interesting, larger initiatives, you got to start building this team. So, you know, how did you go about building that team and scaling your business up? you know, in a way that, you know, I think there's always a risk there, right, for the business owner, when you start introducing more people into your model, right, you need to do it to grow, but it can also be risky if you don't have the right partners, you know, that are aligned with your organization and your value system. So how did you go about kind of bringing on those strategic partners and starting to develop those relationships to provide even more value to clients. you point out the
2: pitfalls very well, and that was probably my hesitancy and why I didn't start doing that earlier in the history of the Change Collaborative. Um, It was a slow and deliberate process. First of all, uh, like you, Jeff, I was doing a ton of networking. I still do try to make that part of what we do every day, every week, and I was meeting a lot of people who had similar values and experiences. Um, and so what I started to do was look for small project opportunities, not, you know, one or two or three year projects or, you know, large dollar amount projects, but just small opportunities where we could experiment and partner together and try each other out. Kind of like dating, like, hey, let's not get married yet, but let's date and, and see if it's, if, see if it's a good fit. And um, one of those early projects was simply a two-day workshop. And I brought a partner in and we, um, we produced something for the client that we still talk about as a really cool, innovative solution uh, that, was the be- that was the result of us putting our heads together and coming up with something that neither of us would have created on our own. So it was starting small and then it was continuing to test and experiment and, and, uh, and date and and sometimes we dated people and it, and it hasn't worked and that's okay too. Yeah.
1: Deb, so I just wanted to ask you real quick uh, from a networking standpoint, how large of a role did networking play into the early stages of your development as a business and community leader and how important it's of a huge. role does it still play? Uh,
2: the network is the lifeblood of, of, of what we do and who we are. I would say a third of, of the projects and the work that we do is through a partner either somebody who needs to augment their team or somebody who uh, is approached to do some work and and they don't have the capacity to do it. Um, A third of our work comes through referral um, just because somebody has worked with us in the past or knows of us through somebody who's worked with us. And probably a third of the work comes through active um, engagement, I would say traditional business development activity, um, meeting people, learning about what they're doing, finding opportunities to to align and, and support one another, um, all the way to writing formal proposals or or uh, doing presentations for organizations that are looking to buy the types of services we offer. But that it all happens through the network. It it's that is the lifeblood.
0: No, that's that does. Awesome. I mean, I couldn't say it better myself, right? I think consulting and just business in general, it's, I find it to be a people business, you know, it comes down to no like and trust, does. right? And if you have, you've developed that or others that have developed that with you become the advocates for you and your business, right? That's just, you start to get some of that growth, um, going from your your business set now one thing that you had mentioned and I wanted to maybe dial in on just a little bit so as you started partnering you could get more complex and interesting you know projects is that really when you started getting more into the fortune 500 and some of the larger organizations that that you've been working with um, you know as you started to make that shift and and what's some of the challenges between you know, maybe a smaller regional client versus a Fortune 500, Fortune 100 client that you work with? You know, how do you how do you approach those, you know, the same or different in in your practice? Yes,
2: I do think the partnering is what led us to larger organizations that often have um, the budget and the need to hire people like us. Um, there are there are definitely um, differences in working with large organizations. Um, procurement is 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 one example. So uh, the concepts of you need to be a preferred vendor and have a master services agreement in place and meet you know certain uh, minimum insurance requirements in order to, for us uh, us as an organization to feel like we can take the risk on in bringing you in as a vendor. Those are some of the things that large organizations um, uh, have developed that for a really small business where, where it's, you know, less than 10 people in a small business. Um, that's, those are a lot of requirements that you need to be ready to meet in order to do business at that level. And so that was one of the learnings sometimes, um, with a smaller organization or a medium sized organization, you don't have, uh, fully mature or, or, or really developed, Uh, supply chain or procurement processes. And it's a little bit easier to get in the door and just help somebody on a smaller scale basis without having to go through a lot of formal steps. So that's definitely one difference. Um, Despite that, uh, we have found that people that we worked with who have then moved on in their career and and moved into other organizations often have latitude and levers that they can pull if they have a trusted partner that they would like to bring in. Sometimes they can do that without having to go through the the formal channels all the time, so it's it's a little bit about who you know as well as the processes and how formal they are in, in some inside some of these organizations.
0: That totally makes sense, and it sounds like some of it, it you know also goes back to <laughs> networking right if you have folks you've worked with at these smaller to mid sized organizations that now find themselves at a much larger organization. Right, and and they have kind of the awareness of your company's brand, your brand, and that you do really good work. Right, it's a it's an opportunity to maybe skirt those processes a little bit, right, or move through that that process a little quicker right. than what. You and as a
2: small business, do. we don't always have the time. We don't. Um, we do. We do it all. So, uh, hiring a lawyer to review legal agreements is time away from delivering project work. Um, you know, worrying about uh, complex procurement or payment processes takes us away from doing client work. So the easier it is to work with a client, the better match it is for us. You
0: no, know, that's really, really an interesting point, right, that I don't think people always think about in terms of. Businesses or that when you're in a smaller business, the impacts of some of those additional due diligence steps, what they have on you know the practice and and I'm also kind of probably making a little bit of a jump here, but also on the cash flow position of a small business owner, right? Uh, you know, I know some organizations have you know net sixty, net 90 net insert number here, right number of days to, to pay after work gets complete. Um, how do you typically work, you know, work through some of those things being a Quite small frankly, business owner. We
2: can't afford um, probably really anything other than net 45. Uh, net 30 is standard for, for us. It's what our expectation is going into working with a client. Um, I always try to frame it for folks like, hey, I know you're employed by this organization. Would you wait 45 days for your paycheck? Probably not. You, you're used to getting paid probably every two weeks. And so when I frame it like that, I think it humanizes it a little bit more and it helps people understand that, um, you know, multi-billion dollar industries and organizations can, can um, finance each other <laughs> over 90 or 120 days, but it, that's very hard for a small business to do that. So quite frankly, sometimes we just say no to work if we can't come to terms because it's, it does not um, benefit us as a small business to, to carry The financing costs of a large business on our backs.
1: Yeah, so to kind of piggyback off of that, what would you say are some vital entities of any startup or young business uh, that an entrepreneur absolutely needs to know before? Need to have some
2: familiarity with some basic accounting principles. I remember I took a couple semesters of accounting in college, and it was enough just to understand what you're talking about: cash flow and payment terms and. You know, accrual method of accounting versus cash based method of accounting. These are things that you can pick up in, you know, probably podcasts and reading, you know, short executive summaries, but just knowing the finance and the language of business from a money perspective is helpful. Um, I would say reading the fine print. So I'm not an attorney, I didn't go to law school, but always reading contracts. And not just signing things because you're really eager to, to do a piece of work for somebody, but to read it and say, am I going to put myself at risk? Or, or am I going to put my small company at risk in any way? And then the third thing I would say is um, pull in partners sooner rather than later. So if you find yourself spending all of your time reading contracts or uh, being your own bookkeeper, it might be worth you know, putting forward a little bit of an investment to have somebody do that work for you so that you can do what what you're best at. And it's easy for me to say that. I haven't always taken my own advice, but I do think that that is something that business owners often fall into that trap of trying to do it all themselves.
1: I love that. Partners is definitely playing into the networking aspect of really your life. Uh, If you're going to be an entrepreneur, it's more of a lifestyle than a journey. And yeah, that's great advice. Thank you.
0: Oh, that's really good. So, Deb, I want to maybe shift one more time. So, you know, we talked about working with different sized clients and some of the success that you've had in, in your business. You know, with things that you've learned, right? Or things that maybe looking back, you know, early in your journey, you know what were some of those aha moments when you look back at man i really wish that i would have done this differently knowing what i know now you know what are some of those lessons that maybe you've learned along the way that that could help someone that's just starting out or thinking of just starting out um, you know what are some of those lessons that that you've picked up
2: on? yeah i think we we've, we've talked about a lot of them the 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 power of the network the recognition that you, you can't do everything yourself, that you do need to bring in expertise, uh, that there's only 24 hours in a day, and where, where is the most value-added and impactful uh, work that you can spend your time doing, and being clear on that. I think another big lesson uh, for consulting in general, and I think it's true for any business, is that you cannot get so focused on doing the work that you forget to build your pipeline, And uh, you you have to have a way to manage that. It's constantly a balance. It's constantly a challenge. But you have to have a strategy for how you're going to approach that, whether that's, again, bringing in a partner or maybe carving out a certain amount of time a week that you're going to be in touch with your network and and having lunches and making phone calls and, and writing thought pieces and marketing pieces or working on your website, whatever it is. You have to do that. That's the care and feeding of your business.
1: Yeah. And to kind of go from the young college kid, uh, to where you are now, what exploration ideas would you recommend? Uh, would you recommend traveling the world? Would you recommend getting involved in as many businesses as possible to figure out what you want to do and where you find the most value? That's a great
2: question. Um, (laughs) <laughs> you, you gave me an answer, which traveling the world, I always recommend travel. I think uh, now that I'm thinking about this, and that has also been as a, as a professional, some of the most impactful learning that I've done in the work that I do. Consulting, we can always bring our, um, our cultural uh, biases to how to help a client. And then when you start working with a, an organization in another part of the world, it challenges your belief systems and your assumptions about how to help a, a group move from A to B. So, cl- uh, so travel, uh, cultural awareness, understanding maybe how we've been trained and schooled in, in, in Western thinking is not always the way other people view the world. at solve problems. That is always very helpful. Um, so, yeah, thanks for prompting that, because it, that has been a, a key learning point for me over the years, too.
0: No, that's, that's uh, really interesting. Where, so I know you've done some international work with your organization as well. Wow, where's kind of the, one of the most interesting places you've been able to travel you know, for your business. And maybe you can share just a little bit of the learning from the cultural piece of what you learn, being a part of that culture, trying to help them get their organization. Sure.
2: So I I did a a project for a partner through the network, somebody who had a client um, who um, he could not support their workshops and they had some leadership development experiences that they had planned he had a a family member that was sick in the U.S. and he needed to travel back to the U.S. to to be here for the sick family member. And so I actually went to Austria and filled in for him a couple different times with the same client to help them um, on uh, basically a leadership development project, help build leadership capability within the management team of one of their business units. And it was a manufacturing company. And one of my first experiences with this client was facilitating, they call them conventions, but it's basically a semi-annual meeting where they bring together their top people leaders from around the globe where they have operations. And in this particular meeting, we had um, Austrians, Germans, um, members from China, India. And one of the learnings was how important language was for this for this group, how important um, English as a second language was was everybody's baseline. And we were trying to formulate a direction and a strategy. And we realized that we could not skip over the language and the meaning behind the the words that we were choosing. And this came and smacked us in the face the, the second day we were there. Uh, one of the words that the group had chosen, the English speaking group had chosen was the word collaborate. And our company is called the change collaborative. Uh, So of course I loved that word, Um, but we had a member or two raise their hand on the second day and say, we can't use that word. And everyone looked confused. And, and they said, you know, given our, our, our former Soviet Eastern bloc country status, collaborate takes on a special word. meaning it means that you're spying on us. It means we cannot trust you. It means that you are uh, cooperating with the enemy. And the whole room, including me, just our, 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 our jaws dropped. And we said, Oh, my gosh, of course. And that learning prompted us to go back and spend time Really sh- being sure that the, the taxonomy, the lexicon we were choosing for our strategy work translated and and was appropriate given all of the different cultures in the in the room.
0: Oh wow, that is one heck of a good learning, right? I mean, just to you think about, you're probably chugging away on the work, thinking things going well, and then that comes up in a in a session. Uh, you know, how did you start to recover from that, that feedback in did the moment, help? you know, to make that transition? De- Deb, are you still there?
2: I can hear you. Can you can hear me? Hear
0: us. Oh, there we go. Yep, yeah, I can now. I don't know. Did you hear the? Uh, I don't think I did. Do the you mind repeating, question? Oh, no, not a problem. So, you know, you talked about learning uh, the meaning and of words. You know, while you were on that that assignment in Austria so how did you make that transition when you know one brave soul at this convention raises their hand and tells you you can't use that word um you know I can only imagine you know at least for me what would be going through my head right on okay how am I going to respond uh how did you how did you walk through that and you know just acknowledge it and and really kind of I think you hit the nail on the
2: head it was acknowledging it and And letting that person speak their truth. And then creating the space for other people to hear that feedback and absorb it. And then once we understood it, just asking the group, well, where do we go from here? Do you have an alternate proposal? Is there another way that we should approach this? And they let it. They knew how to solve the problem. They just needed the space and the time to do it. And did not feel like we needed to rush to get to an answer. And um, I think it was time well-spent. And I, I think they were a stronger team and more aligned as a result of spending that little extra time making sure we got the words right in a um, bilingual and multilingual leadership team.
1: Yeah. Uh, that leadership team sounded very uh, influential in decision-making and their ability to let everyone speak their truth, like you said, and value their, their employees and their partners. So with that being said, what would you say are some essential traits of the most successful mm, leadership teams trust, that you've seen?
2: I know that sounds trite, but it's, it's so true. Uh, if you know somebody on a personal level and you believe that they have your best intentions and vice versa, you can overlook a lot of little things. Uh, but if that underlying trust isn't there, it's very hard to do complex and, and meaningful and impactful work together. So, so that's always one and getting to know people on a personal level and, and realizing that they're human. Uh, one of the things I say to people all the time, if, if there's workplace conflict is that 99% of us n- don't wake up in the morning thinking, how can I screw up and make this person's life miserable? <laughs> most of us get out of bed in the morning saying, how can I, you know, have a good day add value, I want to feel good about the work I do. So most of us don't show up to work trying to be a problem. And if we can think about that and keep that in mind, I think that's always helpful.
0: That's that is great advice, uh, Deb. You know, just thinking about that, and I think it goes to, you know, always assuming right. people have the best intent, right? Um, just out of the gate, and and having that, you know, like you started with, it really goes back to that trust factor, and and what does that mean? So. You know, thank you for your time. and
2: pleasure. And uh, I wish you all the best with the podcast. I know you'll do great things.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Dub Paluso and the Change Collaborative, you can go to thechangecollaborative.com.
1: Thank you for listening today. Uh, please let us know what you would like us to discuss next. If this brought you any value at all, please give us a follow, subscribe, share it with your friends. Really get the word out there. And we'll see you next time.